Hello, and welcome to the Bloodstream Podcast, a show serving the bleeding disorders community. I am your patient advocate and host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am that other advocate, that other host, also a nonprofit nerd. My name is Amy Board. <laughs> <laughs> On today's show, I'm joined by community member, blood brother, and Bloodstream newsletter cover story subject. Cover story subject? That sounds yes. incredible. <laughs> Very juicy. Indeed it is. Luke Pembroke. He joins the show. Luke last joined us three weeks after being dosed with gene therapy as part of a clinical trial now 20 months ago. That's incredible. This was due, and he'll give us updates, and he and I just chat about a bunch of hemo stuff. <laughs> hemo stuff. I tune in for the hemo stuff. It's very, very good. <laughs> just ahead of that, I will be uh, joined one-on-one -on -one with host and writer of The Pain Podcast, the wonderful and hilarious Mel Forrest. Here's the thing, no offense taken, but I am jealous. I love Mel. Like, Mel is solid and she's legit. Cosine. Mel and I talk chronic pain, storytelling, a bunch of other stuff, including, get this, you'll like this, I think, professional wrestling. What? <laughs> How did, what? <laughs> yep. <laughs> Didn't see it coming either. There's all of that and more coming up today on Bloodstream. You can support the Bloodstream podcast simply by subscribing to Bloodstream wherever you get your podcasts or by leaving us reviews on the Apple Store and or Spotify and by sharing content on social media. You can also tell someone about the Bloodstream podcast, Bloodstream Media Facebook, Twitter or Instagram accounts. In fact, you can do all of those things and please do rate, review, subscribe and share the Bloodstream podcast today. And listeners, I would like to remind you that the Bloodstream podcast is made possible by our presenting sponsor, Takeda. Yes, that's right, Takeda. Takeda's got this website, bleedingdisorders.com, where you can learn all about Takeda's resources for and commitment to the bleeding disorders community. Takeda believes in a world free of bleeds and are dedicated more than ever in their efforts to offer a wide range of programs and support to help patients throughout their treatment journey, wherever on that journey they may be. You can learn more by simply visiting bleedingdisorders.com. One more time, that's bleedingdisorders.com. And for their founding and ongoing support of the Bloodstream Podcast, I would just like to say thanks, Takeda. And with that being said, the next thing I would like to say before we get into the meat of today's episode, hi, Amy, we're recording this on a Monday. How are you and what's going on in your world? On a Monday. On a Monday. Normally we don't record on a Monday. Behind the scenes, everybody, we usually record on like a Wednesday or a Tuesday. So this is a Monday. <laughs> yes. But I have to say that I had my first apple orchard experience yesterday. Oh, cool. I grew up in Denver, Colorado, and my mom reminded me, she was like, there's no orchards in Colorado. And that is 100% a thing. We don't have fruit orchards. So I've done like the pumpkin patch, sure. you know, thing in the fall, but I've never done an apple orchard. And so it was a big deal. And I, and I didn't pick any apples because they're gross apparently, but I did oh. pick raspberries. Interesting. That's kind of a wah-wah. No, I mean, I hear this is maybe the height of lame, but I was so, I loved seeing the apples. Like, you know, you got like right underneath, but I heard from the grapevine and the people that I went with, the apples are always gross. They're like uh. mealy and gross, you know, cause they like pick the good ones and then they look like the gross ones for the other people. So I didn't feel the need to pick any, but I did see them on the tree and it was very special. 
Nice. Well, welcome to the, uh, the I, I say welcome, I don't live there now, but I guess I still feel myself associated with the Northeast. You know what I did find, speaking of being associated with the Northeast? I guess they wrote about Blood of the Paladin in uh, a Boston University thing about, like, alumni Patrick Lynch and this thing that we're doing. I haven't actually looked into this. I should probably do that before this goes that live. That is so cool. Did you just get, like, a ping from, like, a college pal or something? Actually, it's funny. I grew up with them. We went to the same grammar school, high school, and college. Only person I did that with, Ted Fiorelicio, shouts out. He works in media and journalism on the East Coast. Maybe he listens regularly. I know he does sometimes. Hey, Ted, if you're listening. But he sent me a text and it was like, congratulations on this. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And uh, I still don't. I haven't looked into it, but I trust it's true. And he was like, the graphic novel. And I was like, oh, cool. So that was my, I guess, weekend Northeast bonding moment was Ted being like, congratulations on a thing our college is saying you did, which I did do. That is super cool. I will say, listeners, if you have, we talk about it all the time, but like just one more plug. If you have not checked out the graphic novel, Blood of the Palace, First of all, Jonathan Hill is one of my favorite people on the planet. I could listen to him talk yeah, forever. And great. he is such an authentic, warm, like engaging soul. And his story is so wonderful. And the graphic novel, I think, is one of the coolest things we've done. I think it is so cool. It is. It really is. So yeah, check that out, Blood of the Paladin. You can listen to the Bloodstream Media Podcast audio version, which is neat because you get to hear from Jonathan. In addition to hearing the graphic novel brought to life through uh, audio format, you hear from Jonathan. You hear his wife, who's a prominent character, of course, in his story and in the graphic novel. His friends who he plays with, who you hear from all throughout the novel, you hear them today talking about the experience with him. So it's just a really like deep experience if that's if that's your thing. So that's part of bloodstreammedia.com. Go click on the Blood of the Paladin stuff. But do that only after you finish listening to this great episode because we have two great interviews coming up here. Later on, we'll talk to Luke. Talked about Luke earlier. You know who Luke is or you heard me mention him earlier. So we'll get to that in a little bit. But first, Mel Forrest, writer of The Pain Podcast, a key member of the team here, works on a bunch of stuff with us. But right now, The Pain Podcast is out with season three. As we're listening to this, the first two episodes are available. So while you're on bloodstreammedia.com, checking out Blood of the Paladin, you can also click over to The Pain Podcast and listen to the first couple episodes from this season. You can listen to the first full seasons, uh, first two seasons in full as well. So Mel's going to come on. We're going to talk a little bit about her work this year on that show focusing on the sociological components that contribute to a person's experience of pain. We've spent a lot of time on the pain podcast and the definitional what is pain from a medical standpoint, the sociological point of view. But now we're focusing on the lived experience and how your sociology, the society you're a part of, the way you exist in the world has a great impact on your experience of being in pain. So an interesting layer of the pain onion, so to speak. And we will talk a little about wrestling, as you'll also hear. I can't wait. I can't wait to listen to Mel. I can't wait to listen to Luke. All right, let's do it. First Mel, then Luke. Amy and I will catch you on on the other side. Enjoy. Joining me now from The Pain Pod and many other things, Believe Limited related and outside of Believe. She has a life outside of Believe, does things outside of Believe, believe it or not, is the one and only Mel Forrest. Hi, Mel. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Patrick. Thank you for having me. You are the lead on The Pain Podcast for the second season now. Season three just started and we released the first episode a couple weeks ago. So let's start there. What's going on in season three of The Pain Podcast? Audiences have heard us talk about this before. They've heard you and I talk about this before. But season three in particular, what's going on and what can people hear in the very first episode of the season? Well, this season, we're taking a look at the social side of pain. So How pain hangs out with other pain? Y- well, you know, a little bit, but also how it <laughs> hangs out with you. The life we live can affect the pain we feel, but how does it work the opposite way? Like on the first episode, we talk about it a lot and we dive into the biopsychosocial approach and really dive into the sociologic components that make up pain. And and how we can address them, you know, the access to care surrounding that. You know, we talk about 
biologic components a lot and psychologic components, but are we really addressing those sociologic components that make up pain? And I think we're getting there, but maybe this will help push forward the conversation a little bit more Mm. and explore those components that make up pain. Well, without totally stepping on the content from the season itself, is there anything that you learned in particular about the sociological component of pain and how that impacts somebody's lived experience with pain that might be of interest to listeners? Sure. Yeah. One of the big things was how where a person lives can affect their access to care, just maybe even the supermarkets in their area or you mm. know their pharmacies and their hospitals can affect the way that they get access to treatment as well as you know their doctors and their clinicians and, you know, go even further up the ladder, pain management clinics. How available are these to people who are experiencing chronic pain? Because over 50 million people in the U.S. experience chronic pain. Mm. It's not going to be 50 million people in just major cities. We're looking at rural areas everywhere. So what is our access to these treatments and how available are they for people in not major cities? Which isn't unlike some of the conversation around hemophilia products that we talk about on bloodstream quite often often. And as things are made available and the excitement around them grows, there's need for the reminder that they're not available everywhere to everyone with every insurance plan all around Mm -hmm. the world and different health systems. There was something that Dr. Zaidi shares in the first episode. He cites this, uh, and I'm going to botch the details, but he essentially makes the point that once upon a time there was an accepted, and once upon a time being like 150 years ago, Mm -hmm. there was an accepted understanding that if you had dark skin, it was less. That you, don't quote me on this, but that you had thicker skin, that you felt pain. You didn't feel pain as as much. much. Yes. So that's what they use, you know, during slavery that they would excuse themselves for, you know, hitting and whipping their slaves and black people, essentially. We think that's not believed today by most doctors and physicians, which is, you know, true. But there is the education system that surrounded that. I was listening this morning. I believe it's in episode one, so you can double check it there. But I believe there was something like in 2017, a study that was done of medical residents and students. And amongst those, 25%, I believe, Believe 20 or 25. 5% believed that was true? That that was true, yes. In 2017. In 2017, yes. So it's one of those things when we think about systemic challenges to people accessing equitable care, whose fault is it that 20% of people, 25% of people, that I don't know the answer to that, but obviously there's a big problem and it's not enough to be like, yeah, but 150 years ago, it was a bigger problem. Like, okay, good. We've made some progress. I hope so. It doesn't mean we're done. Yeah. There's also a big thing with implicit bias. You know, it's not on the surface, but how does someone believe someone coming in talking about pain? That's going to affect their access to care. And also, I think Dr. Zadie talks about talk time. That's a huge difference. Mm. You know, a physician that talks has implicit bias is often going to talk longer, which is not going to allow the person to get the proper access to care that they need. And I remember in season one, I think it was, it came up amongst a couple of the people. I want to say there was a pain psychologist and maybe one chiropractor who were emphasizing the amount of time in the room with the patient and hearing their story and understanding where they're coming from. So it's interesting, like they have all the more, I'd say they're on the the more progressive lines of research into pain and pain management and all of the multifactorial considerations that result in someone's pain experience. And then there's also those who are going to spend most of the time talking to you about what they know and not listening and are missing all sorts of information and therefore aren't going to be able to help you arrive at the optimal decision for your treatment. 
treatment and care, which is unfortunate, but I think a reality in a lot of places. Yeah. But there was something you said there. You know, we say this phrase pain experience. I think that now research and experts and patients are starting to look at that idea of the pain experience. Like, what does that fully entail? Mm -hmm. And part of that is like your physician listening to your pain experience. They're taking in your biologic, your psychologic, and your sociologic components that make up your full experience. So I think that's really focusing in on that idea of the pain experience. So speaking of the pain experience, I want to take a quick pause here. Again, listeners who have been with Bloodstream for a while, you know the Pain Podcast is produced by Bloodstream Media and made possible thanks to its sponsor, Tremo Pharmaceuticals. Tremo has a study that they're involved in, the Reset HA Study, and I encourage you to check out ResetHAStudy.com to learn more. The study is a clinical research study for people who experience joint pain due to hemophilia, and it's evaluating an oral non-opioid investigational drug designed to be taken once a day to see if it may help potentially relieve joint pain and improve physical function in people with hemophilic arthropathy, or HA. If you are between the ages of 12 and 75, have been diagnosed with hemophilia A or B, and have chronic pain in one or more joints, and if you do not take opioid medication more than four times a week, you may be eligible to participate in this clinical research study. So again, to learn more, visit ResetHAStudy.com, R-E-S-E-T-H-A-S-T-U-D-Y.com to find a study location near you and to learn more about Tremo's work. Tremo Pharmaceuticals, again, the sponsor of the Pain Podcast, and we appreciate their sponsorship of that. So speaking of experiences, I would like to ask you a little bit about your experience away from the Pain Podcast, but more so about writing and storytelling in general, because really with the Pain Podcast, we're telling stories, we're helping create a narrative around the experience of pain and helping audiences track a question and try to follow an arc. So these are all storytelling characteristics and and, and things that extend far beyond the work on one podcast. When did you first start writing and telling stories? I think I was in second grade. I love to rewrite books that I was reading. I would read the book and then rewrite it physically. Wow. Yeah. And I think with it, your own spins? No, no, I just wrote it word for word. It was a little bit of a penmanship thing, I think, at the time. <laughs> okay. But fair I enough. loved reading books so much that it kind of was like maybe a way in my mind to relive it. But I also at the same time, I had a good friend who lived around the corner from me and her family went to Vermont for the summer. And when we came back to school, I I, I mean, you know what? I just plagiarized her story, but I made it a little. I was like, oh, I'm going to add all of these things and say it was my summer. And I remember having parents come for like the open house and all of our stories were there. And my mom was like, we didn't do this this summer. And then that was the moment I think they knew. They were like, she loves to just tell stories. You know, we could look at it in very different ways. But I just thought (laughs) that the Vermont story was so captivating that I was like, I'm going to add to that. And then from there, I just loved writing little short pieces all the time. Time. And when I got older, I got into writing comedy and I really like to write character pieces and monologues for a long time. Also with acting as well. There is a part of me that loves fiction storytelling. And I think mm-hmm. it's because it's like it's a great escape to get away from life sometimes, but also to live life in a way. You know, fiction can be a way to live. I really enjoy that storytelling as well as nonfiction actual stories that we're telling through the pain pot. I would get teased in particular. I was understudying for an off-Broadway show 14, 15 years ago now. And there was a conversation with the producer and a few of the cast about the shows or the movies that everyone had seen that first got them interested. And it was producer 
actors and cast as well. So it wasn't all just performers, but everybody's citing the different movies and television. And I was like, I got to be honest, the thing that first got me interested in storytelling and fiction and fantasy and imaginative experiences was professional wrestling. Yes. You know what, Patrick? I'm going to I'm going to put it out here. You know, I love working for Believe. I don't ever want to leave, but I <laughs> would love to be a WWE writer. That's like one of my goals and dreams because you get to write characters. It's like and you get to work with someone about it. And also it's so elaborate and like yes. fantastical and practical because they're using essentially practical effects. It's so cool. I mean, as a kid, I just enjoyed it. And then as an adult, I've been able to appreciate I don't follow it now or or I call myself a fan of it now, oh. but I have a greater appreciation. <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't mean to let you down. I can get back into I really real don't quick. follow it that much, but I love it so much. Listen, if you, when WrestleMania comes around next year, if you and me want to go hang out and watch WrestleMania together, I'm down. But <laughs> I appreciate as an adult the amount of theatricality and storytelling and timing and pacing and the audience, the engagement with the audience. And you look at the excitement in those stadiums, you cannot deny the power of that thing. And knowing at a certain point, like, okay, I'm fine with the fact that this is all fake. I know he didn't really just like punch him in the face and then like he did hit him with, with that chair a lot, but I'm sure it wasn't as bad as it could have been. <laughs> but there's something real that is happening here and I'm into it. Yeah, as an adult, like if I'm being honest, as much as I can cite movies and TV too that as a kid meant something, but if you're really asking like what got the creative juices flowing, it was this combination of physical prowess and, and beauty and costumes and theatricality and storytelling in a way that I think as somebody with hemophilia and as a kid with an inhibitor and spending a lot of time on the couch and laid up, watching people do these physically unimaginable things for me and for most of us, but for me especially, I, don't, I felt connected to something I could not otherwise participate in in any way, shape or form. And it was totally safe for me. Mm -hmm. And it was an evening event. Gran would order dominoes oh, to yeah. commemorate it. So I definitely appreciate the interest in fiction and in the characters <laughs> of the world wrestling entertainment. Is there anything that you're working on? Again, outside of Pain Pod and, and some of the, the belief specific stuff, is there anything that you're working on at the moment that's particularly top of mind, exciting, or that you're stuck on or anything like that? Yeah. You know, I'm repicking up a show, a live show I did. You know, I premiered it the week before the pandemic. I'm actually repicking that back up, you know, like in front of a live audience, hopefully in December. Time has passed and mm. I have changed. And so I'm looking at it now of like, how does this evolve from then? Mm. You know, some of the things I was writing about and performing about them are not going to be how I feel now. You know, we've all changed in a very, very big way. So how can that be put into what I'm writing and what I'm performing what's the purpose of this now right it's a one person show i do the whole thing for 30 minutes and i explore different characters through the lens of this robot that was made by Honda called Asimo. It's a bipedal humanoid robot. Right. But in 2017, they stopped making the robot. So this picks up after, you know, that. What happens after you're no longer needed? So Ooh. it explores failure or what failure is. It's a lot of physical comedy. Mm. So I play the robot and I explore other characters through the lens of Asimo. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to hear. I didn't know that you were retooling it, putting it back up maybe in December. That's exciting. Yeah, I don't want to tell a lot of people because then that puts pressure on it for it to happen. But now right. I've, now you've pressured me. Now it has to bit. happen. Yeah, you got this, tricked into a podcast. Yeah, this is like in WWE where they're like, I'm coming for you, McMahon. And then he <laughs> has to come for you. So. <laughs> 
Last time you were on, we did make this commitment. If there were any sessions or moments from the BDC that stuck out to you as it relates to pain, or if there's anything else in particular. So I want to give you an opportunity to speak to that. Was there anything from the BDC that you want to share with listeners? Yeah, I went to uh, Pain Explained, and it featured Dr. Lena Volan. The biggest takeaway was that there is a new definition of pain. I wrote it down, and I'd love to share it with Please everyone. Please do. Because I didn't know this. And I think maybe because she wanted to tell her audience, which is a broader audience, like there is a new way to look at pain. But for me, even somebody who is talking about pain a lot, yeah. <laughs> I still felt that it was it struck me. So I would hmm. love to quote the new definition of pain. Please do. It is an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with or resembling that associated with actual or potential tissue damage. So nothing wow. too, too new, but I think the way it's framed mm -hmm. is a lot broader and it gives people the feeling that their pain is valid and it is personal. I think it's so important that like potential tissue damage resembling that which, because as we've learned from this, from the pain podcast, I think most is just how often chronic pain and people's long lasting experiences of pain can be connected to that which is hard to pin down structurally. And it doesn't mean the pain isn't real. It just means there's not necessarily an easily identifiable correlation between something an x-ray can reveal in an elbow and the reported experience that a person is having. And that's why we have, you know, the tools we do where it's like the smiley face or on a scale of one to 10. And these things that fall far short of being meaningful, but for a long time are the best that we've had. You know, anytime I hear something that's like, oh, here's a new definition that's more inclusive, right? It's like, okay, good. What's it mean? But if you ladder down from that way of thinking, and if that becomes something that's universally accepted, it does feel to me like some of the roadblocks that people would express around not being believed at certain points or being misdiagnosed. It feels like this, if adopted, enables those moments to go very differently for people in the future. Yes, yes. And also it's like the idea of the experience. Yes. You can give all of your information and know that it's going to be all taken in. And being heard, like just knowing that like what you've shared has been heard. Yeah. What does that do in and of itself to alleviate pain in a very real way? Absolutely, absolutely. Last thing I want to ask you about before we wrap here, coming up in just a minute, listeners are going to hear my conversation with Luke Pembroke. He was able to specifically remind me the last time he was on the podcast was only three weeks after he was dosed with gene therapy, now 20 months ago. Wow. But you, Mel, you wrote the cover story for our first newsletter that went out this summer that featured Luke and was all around this idea of who am I without hemophilia? What is the changing identity or how does someone like Luke, who's been dosed with gene therapy, what does that mean for his identity? Identity as someone with hemophilia. Jonathan Hill, author of Blood of the Paladin, we've talked about that with him when he's gotten his liver transplant that technically cures his hemophilia. All of that said, knowing that we're about to hear from Luke, I'm curious to hear from you. What were your takeaways from the conversation with him for that piece? And as you finished it, it's come out. There's been some time to reflect or hear feedback. I'm curious to know what has stuck with you from that. Yeah, you know, that was such an interesting conversation because I was expecting him to be talking a certain way and presenting hemophilia for himself in a certain way. And he was very honest about how he felt towards his hemophilia and that the reason why he wanted to do gene therapy, he kind of basically said, you know, if I didn't have this, my life might be, it's going to be different and it might be better, you know, in certain aspects. And it doesn't take away, he says, it doesn't take away all that he's gained from having it, but it felt very real to hear that. And I thought that that was really interesting because I think sometimes you want to identify with it so that way you can feel like you have community, but sometimes mm. like it is literally painful. Right. And it was interesting to get his honest feedback on that and the two sides of it that, you know, you have your identity with it and then maybe your identity without it. 
and he's as honest as ever. So I think you'll enjoy the next conversation. Oh, I'm excited. I love too. talking with him. <laughs> Mel Forrest, the host, writer, and lead of The Pain Podcast, season three, available now. You can search for The Pain Podcast or Bloodstream Pain. There are a couple other podcasts out there that use pain and pain podcasts. So Bloodstream Pain, I have found, is a good shortcut if you're having any trouble in the indexing or go to bloodstreammedia.com where you can find links to that and all of our podcasts. Mel, again, thank you. Great work on season three. It's been really fun to work on with you. I'm excited for all the rest of the episodes to come out. And listeners, if you have anything that you would like to share with Mel or about the Pain Podcast or things you'd like to hear on the Pain Podcast in the future, don't hesitate to reach out via social media or as always, mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. Mel, thank you. Thank you for having me. And with that, let's go over and talk to our friend Luke Pembroke. All right, I'm joined now by my blood brother from across the pond, Luke Pembroke. Hello, Luke, how are you? Hey, Patrick, it's good to be back. Uh, Been a while. It has been a while. We were just actually, before we hopped on here, we were just off mic and Luke was reminding me it was like three weeks after your gene therapy dose that you came onto the podcast last time, last year, and it's been, what did you just say, 20 months now? Yeah, coming up to it. And uh, yeah, just to think that I, I did the whole announcement about an hour after I got dosed on Twitter and then it sort of blew up overnight and my clinical team were kind of like, ah, <laughs> wow, what have you done? Like they knew I was going to be sharing stuff, but I don't think I expected quite the response. And then three weeks later, I was on the podcast sort of deep diving into what the whole dosing procedure was like. Yeah, it's been it's been interesting looking back at how transparent I've been, but then how once I was in the midst of the trial, uh, I sort of dropped off being as present and out there because uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a tough time, man. As uh, as I know, we've we sort of spoke about offline uh, during the past year. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get an update from you now as to where are you right now? So you're 20 months in, how are you feeling? What's most top of mind and, and present for you right now in, in your hemophilia management, so to speak? Yeah, so I guess I'll, uh, I'll, I'll tell people what they probably want to hear, which is like, where are the levels? What am I at? So my levels at the moment, and they fluctuate depending on, you know, your blood tests each month, you're going to have some degree of fluctuation. Sure. Uh, but I sort of sit around the 25 to 30% mark. So I am a, I'm a mild hemophiliac as of today. There was a time during the trial that I technically didn't have hemophilia and my levels were over 50%, but that was largely exaggerated due to being on the prednisolone, the steroid treatment. Mm. And uh, they did say that they expected the levels to drop off a bit when I came off of that. The levels did drop off a little bit more than they're expecting. And Mm. I won't lie, part of me was very disappointed and a little bit gutted when I dropped below 50%. Mm. Like I know mild levels are still great and life-changing, but I'd become so obsessed over what my factor levels were that I was receiving multiple times a week and then each week, then once every two weeks. And now I get them once a month. And as that gap broadens, generates a bit of anxiety. It's not normal for people Mm. with hemophilia to get their factor levels more than twice a year when they go in for their you know, PK analysis, for example. Right. Suddenly in the trial, you're getting the levels all the time and there's a sort of obsessive nature to it. It's been a process adjusting to having mild levels and trusting in them and knowing that they're there and they're protecting me from bleeds happening. And it's only within the last couple of months, I'd say from the start of summer, where I really had a chance to go out into the world and put it to the test. And, you know, the Euros were on, football crazy over here, going out to the pub, having late nights with friends and not really taking the time to stop and realize, oh, wow, like I don't have to inject myself before going out. And I wake up in the morning and I'm not having a bleed. (laughs) It's uh, 
it's a lot to adjust to. No breakthrough bleeds or any, any challenges this summer as you were out and about and living life a little more normally? So I did have a bleed actually. Okay. Sort of superficial, like subdermal bleed into the top of the foot. And it happened about two or three weeks after I started getting back out running. Mm. And that kept me off my feet for about two weeks. Uh, it panicked me a little bit because I had the bruising come through and I just knew straight away, like, this is a bleed. This isn't just the chronic pain. Was that that top of the foot spot? Was that a target spot for you or a spot you were accustomed to getting bleeds? Or was that a new spot for you to have a bleed in? Yeah, it was new. I mean, I've probably had bleeds in that area before from playing football when I was a kid, but not for a while. Like it would mainly be into the ankle joint. This was something different. That's why I think I picked up on it so quickly, knowing it'd be a bleed. And it kept me off my feet for a week. But I didn't have to take any factor for it. It took care of itself. And I spoke to my physio and he said, look, it's a sort of bruised metatarsal. This is a, an injury that anyone who is getting back into running could have had. Mm. And my recovery progression was the same as someone quote unquote normal. It was an interesting experience. And it was kind of like, oh, wow, what, what are the chances? It was about a year after I'd had gene therapy as well. I was like, what are the chances I have a bleed a year later? But it wasn't a bleed like I was used to the whole experience was a lot different and it was it was kind of nerve-wracking having to wait and see sure we're so used to you have a bleed you take factor you treat all of a sudden i wasn't doing that i wasn't meant to do that it was a case of let's see what happens you have mild levels it should take care of itself and it, and it did so that <laughs> that was cool it, it, it works hallelujah <laughs> have you had a chance to talk with other people who have been dosed maybe around the same-ish time as you and are in a similar point in their trajectory or or even people who are further along or maybe more recently dosed, just really anybody who's also received a dose. Uh, curious to know what those conversations have been like if you've been in them. Yeah, I've had a, a few chats with people online and sort of Instagram conversations, you know, DM pops up and I've had chats with people who've gone through gene therapy trials. I've spoken to probably more hemophilia A guys that have gone through trials, I've spoken to people who experienced the sort of immunosuppression side effects like I did. And it was nice having someone to, to kind of share that experience with. And I was involved in a focus group activity towards the end of last summer where there were people from America and Europe who'd had gene therapy. I was the one who'd had it most recently. Most of them were at least a year or a couple of years on. And it was interesting hearing their experiences about it. They struck me as a lot more positive about the experience than I was feeling at the time. And I think that just really shows how intense that first year is and how your mind can be really clouded by the rigor of the trial. And yeah, it's only within the last sort of half a year, I'd say that I've really given myself the opportunity to enjoy what it's like being on gene therapy and having experienced it. I kind of get it now. Looking back to hearing those conversations, I, I can relate more to some of the experiences they were sharing. For that initial 12 months after dosing, I just couldn't see through the fog of it all. That's important, I think, for people to hear. I was talking to some Somebody who works at one of the companies investigating gene therapy right now, not for the podcast, offline. And she was sharing how internally there's been conversation around how to shift some of the discussion around this idea of one and done, forgetting that there might actually, you know, be a, a redose, which is a whole different track, but just the idea, let's say you only need the one dose. Let's say it is from a shot perspective, quote, one and done. That comes with this connotation of like, okay, I walk into the clinic, I get this shot, I walk out and I walk away from hemophilia. And it's hardly that. As you're describing, 
this is quite a process. I'm wondering, like being now 20 months in, having experienced everything you have on this gene therapy journey, do you have specific ideas of how we could communicate to people with hemophilia, to caregivers of like teenagers who are thinking about it in their not too distant future? How could we help the conversation include a bit more of the reality of what it's like to actually go through this long journey of not just getting this shot. It's not just the shot. It's everything leading up to it and everything that follows. Do you have ideas of how we could help people understand that a little more? Well, exactly. The dosing is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the experience. And I think capturing those experiences is going to be so important and being able to communicate those to the patient community. At the moment, I feel like there's this curtain that's still up and people going through gene therapy trials perhaps have been told that they can't share as much as they want to or that they don't want to. But I think if we can identify people that have been through the trial experience that are willing and open to share that experience in a very candid and honest way, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, I think that's going to be really important. You know me, I I love video, I love storytelling. And I think capturing those stories of people who've gone through this trial or trials, you know, there's loads going on now and there's only going to be more is going to be really important because I mean, at the moment, Patrick, I'd say every day on average, I get a message from someone somewhere in the world asking about gene therapy. Wow. And the questions really do vary. But you know, sadly, a lot of the time it's people from developing countries who are asking me if I can help them get on a trial or where do they get gene therapy. People you know, within the UK or, or the US asking about gene therapy and, and how I get involved in a trial. And I think there's still a lot of mystery around it. We go to these conferences and we hear all about the latest data and it's very easy for us as patient advocates in this echo chamber to forget that there's this whole community out there that aren't as involved who are curious about this, but there's still not really that many resources out there. And I know the community are making really strong efforts to improve that. And I think it's great to have all the information out there that communicates the science of it in a digestible way for the layman. To complement that, there's nothing more powerful than people's stories and people that have gone through it. I think that's why a lot of the time we got involved in advocacy in the first place is just the power of sharing your own story or hearing someone else's. And then it snowballs from there. And I think we need to carry that across into the group of people that are now the new age of hemophiliacs, if you like, the genetically modified people. (laughs) It's so true, though. We talk about the value of story and how when we're advocating for ourselves, whether it's a policy issue or you look what's happening right now in the UK, right, with the blood scandal inquiry and the people sharing stories. And that's what captures headlines. That's what captures people's hearts and, and can maybe actually change minds. When we go to state days or our national day here in the US to advocate with legislators, so much of the visit and the planning for the visit is built around telling your story and knowing how that connects to what the ask is. But when it comes to investigational science, you know, as someone who does work on multiple fronts within this community and multiple fronts within communications and who's in conversations with manufacturers and people running trials who have an interest in being able to share experiences, but there are all these regulations and reasons that they can't support that. And you're right, Luke, like we can on one hand say story is so important. And then we go over here to this really important part of our health and life to investigational gene therapy treatments. And it's the science, the science, the science. And that's important to a point. But you're right. There's this other piece, the story, the lived experience that is kind of living behind a curtain. I mean, frankly, you're one of only a couple few people who I'm aware of who are 
outspoken, putting things out there. And to your point, people maybe have been told they can't or, or, or highly discouraged or they don't want to, which is a legitimate reason as well. But it's felt to me really unfortunate in the last few years that we don't have a mechanism by which we can be capturing what people's experiences are. And I get like I, my own head is like giving me the well, you know, it's investigational science. And it, I know, I know, I know, I just have to imagine like, I'm too imaginative to not believe there's a way we can do this that's appropriate because the value of it is tremendous. And I don't know how else it can be said or how many people need to express the desire to hear from other people going through an experience to help them determine if it's an experience that's right for them. I don't know what needs to happen for us to change this in any way, but as you can probably tell, it's a major frustration of mine. And I also think it becomes then a little unfair to you and people like you who are willing to step forward because you become one of only a few people. And so you have to be willing to absorb everybody who's got you know, uh, $100 in, a, in a, a stock account because they want to ask you about your factor levels. They can make choices about stocks they're going to trade from people in India who want you like every you have to be willing to be inundated with this kind of stuff, as you just said, daily. And I so appreciate that, you know, you're doing what you're doing and you are willing, but that's not fair. That's just an added burden of someone who's doing something that is so clearly valuable or else we wouldn't be seeing the kind of responses we are. All right, I'll get off my soapbox right now. I'm just feeling a little fired up. No, I 100% agree. It's just I, I, I knew that I was going to get a lot of different people getting in touch if I decided to go ahead with being so open and public about it, but I hadn't seen seen anything like it. It was important to do. And the response I had from the clinical community on Twitter was, I, I, I couldn't have been more thankful. I was so pleased with the amount of leading clinicians that were positive about me doing this. I had messages from other people who'd gone through a trial asking, how are you doing this? Like I was told I'm not allowed to talk about it publicly yet. And I think different trials have different protocols in place in terms of NDAs, but my clinical team were amazing. And I have to acknowledge my own privilege on that front. Like I'm fortunate enough to work within hemophilia and have a very understanding boss that is happy to support me in everything I want to do and share. I have the backing of my clinical team who know that I'm not going to overstep the mark and say something that could be completely misconstrued. I personally, personally made the decision to not announce my factor levels until I'd at least reached the year mark because I knew that I would say a number early on and, and people would just latch onto it. Like you say, you've got those people, investors out there. And to be honest, if they're going off of me reporting one factor level at one time point within the year, they're not, they're not particularly uh, good investors, I, I imagine. But Touché. my concern doesn't really lie with them uh, most uh, most of the time of i'm course. more worried about what the patient community are hearing and yeah i i did sort of dial back a bit not only because the trial was taking a physical and emotional toll on me and i just didn't feel up to getting on camera and making videos because it would have just been miserable to be honest yeah or not truthful yeah exactly yeah i, I didn't want it to be a pity party but again I, I never try and like sugarcoat the experience i've never have with living with hemophilia like i've always said yeah living with hemophilia really sucks sometimes like i'm <laughs> gonna acknowledge that it's not all great all the time mm -hmm. i feel like there is that pressure as an advocate in the community to sometimes always be looking for the silver lining but I started to feel a big weight on my shoulders to just answer a lot of questions that I was getting. And it had to eventually come back to sort of like a boilerplate response, like go here for more information, ask your center. And this is all I can say because what's happened to me is a completely subjective experience. Yes, my trial experience happened during the middle of a pandemic. I was the last person enrolled and dosed on my trial. Mm. 
that's an extreme circumstance, but every person going through a gene therapy trial is going to have a very subjective experience. I've spoken to a handful of people about it and there's a lot of similarities, but there are some huge differences in how we've experienced the trial. That's why we need to capture this sort of bank of stories, giving patients a bit more autonomy and support in sharing their story. Yeah. Last summer, a lot of people in the community were holding their breath for the first haemophilia gene therapy to be approved that summer. And right. It came as a bit of a shock to people when it didn't happen. Oh, yeah. Whether you think it was good or bad, that can be up for debate. I personally think it's great that we're seeing this initiative to want to get more data and see what's happening over the longer term. That's excellent for the community. But obviously it came with some disappointment. We're probably starting to get closer again to a gene therapy product being approved. Mm -hmm. And if we've got nothing out there, we're going to be playing catch up right from the off. And that's something that we talk about, you know, Patrick, we've been to these ad boards and focus groups. And every time we say like, involve the patient from the beginning, capture the patient voice. And I don't know if it's being done in gene therapy as much as it should be getting done. To that end, I'm curious, Lawrence, Rich and Dakota, their piece that was asking for more transparent, I only skimmed it. I had an intention to read it before this morning's uh, discussion with you, Luke, but that went sideways. It's a long piece. I understand. It took me a good chunk of time to get through it, but it's a good read. Yeah. Yeah, well, can give us the bird's eye view of it. And I think it ties directly to what we're discussing here with the need for more communication and more ability for patients involved in trials to share. But I'm curious, you've actually read it. Give us your take on it. I was actually speaking to Lawrence yesterday and he asked me what my main sort of takeaway from a professional or personal stance was. And I think, again, it comes back to that health literacy element and realizing that I think more needs to be done from the clinician side to encourage patients to seek out educational opportunities, but they need to be there in the first place. Like we need to do more as a community to create opportunities for people to come and learn about this technology and therefore be taking steps towards making an informed decision if and when they come to crossing that bridge. The thing that stuck out to me is that, again, in this sort of patient advocacy echo chamber, it's easy to forget that not everyone is having as rich conversations with their clinical team. There is this big health literacy gap. In the general population, I think everything that's happened with the pandemic has showed that people's health literacy is really not where we want it to be. I think we've got away with that for a while with factor replacement because it's standard of care. A lot of people in hemophilia seem to have a good understanding of, you know, having a good factor level, but it doesn't really go much. Well, there weren't other options for so long too. So not, so, you know, you just didn't need to think beyond a certain point. Exactly. And I think now some of the opportunities there are and potential solutions, such as some sort of peer mentoring program for people who've experienced gene therapy, who can have some sort of network with those who are interested in it, considering it, leading up to making a decision. People in all these different stages of experience with gene therapy and, and those who've actually been through it. But again, we need to recognize that those who've been through it, again, they might still need some sort of support in developing their understanding of gene therapy in order to be able to confidently communicate it to, to a wider audience. The health literacy thing just stands out to me massively. And I think gene therapy, emesuzumab, all these non-factor replacement products coming through, if we're not careful in a couple of years time, we're going to have a bunch of people in this community that really don't have a clue what they're putting in their bodies. And that worries me. We've seen what has happened in the past in this community. And I, I would never like to think that anything that serious would happen again. But I've always said, like, as a base expectation, you should know what medication you are taking, how it affects your body, why you're taking it, 
and understand the risks that might be associated with it. And those are, are big things when it comes to gene therapy. So I'm curious about what you see that's promising. Let's stay on this topic for a minute because we've both been involved in program creation and resource creation. If you go to the European Hemophilia Association or the National Hemophilia Foundation of the United States or any of these organizations, somewhere exists educational material on gene therapy. There are plenty of presentations and virtual presentations and webinars. There are podcasts, there are video series. There's all sorts of web pages. It seems like everyone running a trial has their own suite of educational resources. And yet I don't disagree with you. We still have such an educational burden and a literacy challenge, but a place that I get stuck, and I don't think that this is uncommon, but I just think we have to admit when we get stuck and maybe work together to your point to figure out how do we get unstuck is if we're trying to reach those who are outside the HTC network, who are in rural areas with limited access, who maybe don't have higher education, don't have great health insurance or, or access or whatever the case may be. These are the people who are most in need in, in theory. And yet, if they're not connected to the systems that we have where the resources exist, how do we get them connected to something where where do we put that something? You know, if we if hemophilia affected one out of every 10 people, as opposed to one every, out of every 10,000, well, then we could maybe talk about putting some kind of large health campaign through different health magazines and big commercials and go for a broad gen audience appeal. But that is just not that's not realistic for the size of our population. And this is a challenge, I think, with any rare disease population. What makes ours a little funkier than so many who are looking at gene therapy right now is that for the vast majority of rare diseases, there exists no commercially available medication. Whereas as we know, for hemophilia A and B each, there are many options and different product classes, and that's only continuing to grow. So while other disease communities have sort of a certain burden to get from, hey, we don't have anything, and here's the thing we now have, and here's what it means, ours is a little bit more muddied by, in a good way, all these options. And if someone is not tapped into the existing network where the resources exist, how do we reach them? How do we find them? How do we help bridge that gap? What do we create? Where do we put it? Who's the messenger? Like you said, you know, you don't have all the answers. I clearly don't have all the answers. No one has all the answers or we wouldn't have the problems, but we got to do something we're not doing. And I, for one, don't know what that something is. Million dollar question there, isn't it? It's just realizing how many people are still on that periphery. People have been saying it for years, of course, but I, I still think, especially the industry are still playing catch up. And again, I feel like their own regulations or internal regulations hold them back. Mm. But I mean, social is such a powerful way to reach people. Thinking to the people I've met in Uganda, like they all have a mobile phone and they can reach me on social media and they do. I, videos I put out on YouTube that I don't even necessarily key. What, YouTube is changing all the time and the algorithm and how you get it to work confuses me, but <laughs> somehow people are still finding my videos and sometimes I, I look at the analytics and I'm like, oh, that's where these people are coming from. So it just shows I can make a video about my gene therapy experience and people I've never heard of who I then have to refer on to a patient organization because they don't even know that exists or they've never contacted that are finding me and my content that's a big thing that can be leveraged and used to expand the community. I think the problem is a lot of the content that is then funded and created isn't going to hold people's attention. It comes across maybe too corporate or it's trying to educate people, but it's, again, it's not hitting that, that level and it's too complex. There's a lot of really good content out there. The biggest problem about it is signposting it and getting people to it. 
I mean, drug companies love a website. (laughs) People will go to your website, but use the content that's really good to catch people's attention to then funnel them in. Yes. Don't do it the opposite way around. Like we're going to take YouTube video and embed every single one behind this website that unless you find this website, you're never going to find the video. (laughs) And it it just feels a bit backwards. And like I've worked in the health comms agency before (laughs) and and again, saw similar sorts of, of problems across different disease areas. And it's just so frustrating because there is good stuff out there. I think the authenticity piece is no small ingredient. If it's produced by a certain entity, even optically, it can seem like it's something that's too corporate or too inauthentic or too, if it, it, just based on where it comes from, sometimes we, you know, just humans, we can make those kind of, you know, um, judge a book by its cover associations. But if it's just coming from Luke, a guy with hemophilia sharing, that immediately is a different starting place. And so, how much does that have to do with the appeal? I don't know exactly, but I would I would reckon probably quite a bit. Related topic, but we talked with you for our newsletter, which the story on you is our cover story. Yeah, my copy still hasn't turned up. Oh, no. I want to show it to my mom. <laughs> I'm going to sign it for her. All right, we got to remedy that. Maybe it's just slow shipping times with everything going on. <laughs> But I wanted to ask you about this identity piece and what I liked about the piece that Mel Forrest on our team wrote based on the interview with you was it was looking at this idea of, okay, does gene therapy take hemophilia away from my identity? Like we just spoke about how it's certainly not a one shot and walk away from hemophilia experience, but from an emotional identity perspective, there's something kind of uniquely compelling to me there. And I appreciate the way you shared about that in the article. I'm wondering if you could give us a little insight into where you're at with your identity as someone born with hemophilia and living with hemophilia, who now has had gene therapy in his system for 20 months. It's crazy. And in a lot of ways, I don't feel any different at all. If I'm just thinking about it surface level, but then if I if I really think about what has changed, it's huge. Mm. sitting down and jabbing myself three times a week was such a part of my identity and now I don't do that it's strange it's really strange and I chaired a session at NHF and I spoke to Glenn Pierce about it and even he said like getting used to that adjustment of not having hemophilia and I mean I took it from a very practical standpoint these are my levels this is my diagnosis so I consider myself someone with mild hemophilia at the moment and I guess that still forms part of my identity but I don't compared to how it was I don't feel like I have hemophilia I feel like I have the you know the scars of it I've still got the joint pain the joint damage but it's definitely given me a lot more confidence and freedom I'm running regularly I signed up for a trainer I I go to the gym I lift like heavier weights now I, I do all this stuff that I probably could have done it beforehand but I don't know I feel like that severe hemophilia worry in the back of my head and not wanting to make anything worse was always slightly holding me back. I never wanted to use it as an excuse, but clearly it, it did have an impact. And now all of a sudden, I, I just feel a little bit more liberated from the clutches of my hemophilia, as it were. And I, during the trial early on for the first year, I'd say I probably thought about hemophilia every day because that's what I was dealing with. And now I think slowly but surely I'm having more and more hemophilia free days, like hemophilia doesn't pop into my head. I'd heard it said before, and now it really does resonate with me that I didn't know I needed it until I had it. You know, if things don't work out and I go back to being severe hemophiliac, which hopefully not, things are looking promising now and I believe in the science, but again, time will tell. But, um, you know, I, I know how to live with severe hemophilia, so I'm not afraid of falling back into that. 
but I, I would be disappointed, of course, because I know what it's like now to not be concerned with my hemophilia every day. Long may it continue, fingers crossed. Wow. Well, that's great to hear. You know, going back to, again, when you were last on the podcast, just a few weeks after your first dose. And as you mentioned, you know, across the 20 months, there have been some difficult times, some really trying times in there. And of course, the pandemic only made everything more challenging, I assume. But it's really great to hear you say how positive the impact has been. I think that's an important thing to really come through as it did there at the end, because it, it suggests to me that for the trial and tribulation that may have been the onboarding to this gene therapy and this new new stage of life that the payoff has really so far to your point so far we're still learning but so far has been worth it i mean hearing you speak about being able to live more hemophilia free days that resonates with me i've had moments in my life where i've kind of stepped to the next phase of oh this is far less of a burden now so i i have some appreciation for that and i think that's really important for listeners to hear in conjunction with that it is quite a commitment to decide to move forward getting dosed with gene therapy as part of a clinical trial Luke, where can people go to watch the videos to keep up with you on social media? Can you give us your various handles and places we can find you? Yeah, so I, I'm mainly on Instagram and YouTube for the videos that I make. So if you just search Luke Pembroke, I should pop up. And it's uh, it's actually a picture of me holding my camera at Believes Hemophilia the Musical with the with the backdrop. So if you look for that, that will be me at Luke.Pembroke on Instagram and then uh, LJ Pembroke on Twitter, where I try and be a bit more professional because it's Twitter and we must contribute meaningful, meaningful <laughs> contributions and discussion around the science. Whereas Instagram, I just occasionally act like a bit of a fool and show the lighter <laughs> side of hemophilia if there is one and if you haven't received a copy of the newsletter you can still find them the digital forms available through the bloodstream media website and we're going to get luke his hard copy because that's long overdue luke thanks for the time today man i appreciate it and yeah let's do this again before another 20 months go by absolutely looking forward to it thanks for having me on Thank you again, Luke and Mel, for joining us here on the Bloodstream Podcast. A reminder to subscribe to the Pain Podcast to hear Mel's voice each and every week throughout season three and follow Luke on social media. He gave his handles there and you'll find links in the program notes for more. Thank you both for coming on so much. Appreciate you both. Amy Board, appreciate you as well. And now I'd like to know from you, Ms. Bold, what do we have in store for the listeners on the next episode of the Bloodstream Podcast? Hey, we have Wes Michael from Rare Patient Voice who's going to join us. I'm sure y'all have heard that company name before, Rare Patient Voice, been asked to do a survey or two or 17. But we have Wes <laughs> kind of talking about how he got into market research here, not only in the hemophilia side, but in the rare disease, chronic disease side. It, it's great. It's a good interview. It's a good reminder that when you get these pings to do these surveys of what they really truly are for. I think something that was interesting for me just to remember is they're not always asking for like big emotional things. A lot of time they're just asking for your opinion. Right. And you as the patient, as the caretaker are the market for this of what these companies are building, whether it's a website or a program or some type of app for your phone. So all you have to do is just, you know, click on what you like and what you don't like. And that is so important. So we're excited to have Wes on to hear a little bit more about Rare Patient Voice. We'll also have the latest and greatest from the Let's Talk Mental Health segment with Joshua Sterling Bragg. But with that, that is all for this episode. 
Thanks, as always, to our presenting sponsor, Takeda, bleedingdisorders.com, for wherever on your journey you may be. Thank you to our producer, Drama, to the Bloodstream team. Thank you, listeners, for listening. And a reminder to check out the program notes in your podcast player or on bloodstreammedia.com's episode page, where you'll find the links and information related to the various stories and segments featured on this episode. Hey, do you have a bleeding disorder topic or a health topic that you'd like to hear us discuss a little bit more? Maybe there's an expert or a guest that you're just dying to hear from. We would love to hear it. Email us at mailbag at bloodstreammedia.com. You can connect with us on Bloodstream Media on social media. We're everywhere. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. You can find all the things. And of course, you can follow myself or Patrick James Lynch. You know Patrick James Lynch personally on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well. (laughs) I am your host, Patrick James Lynch. And I am that other host, Amy Board. And until next time, take self-care of yourself. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye.